Psalm 56 this morning in, in, the, in your Bibles. Psalm 56. Once you get there, we'll read our, our text, and uh, then we will we'll dive into walking through this. We're doing a series through different selections in the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 56 this morning. And just seeing how the Psalms uh, in, the, in the Old Testament really intersect with our daily lives, speak to us with such clarity to wherever we are at. Psalm 56, follow along as I read. And as we read God's Word, let's go ahead and stand together one final time out of reverence for the Word of God, Psalm 56. Psalm 56, beginning with the, the title, which would be the first verse actually in the Hebrew text of Scripture. To the chief musician upon Yonath Elam Rakokim, Miktam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. Be merciful unto me, O God, for men would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. For they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. By the way, that's kind of the thesis statement of this psalm. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps. They wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the peoples, O God. Thou tellest, or countest my wanderings. Thou put, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. There's that refrain again. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the land of the living? You may be seated. A little over a year ago, I I did something kind of unusual. Um, I paid for lunch with cash. Remember cash? Those little little pieces of paper in your wallet that have pictures of dead presidents and secretaries of the treasury and whatnot, little numbers on them. Remember those good old days? Uh, These days, I'm like using Apple Pay and all of these sort of digital cool things. But what what struck me as I pulled the $20 bill out of my wallet, I noticed something strange. Somebody had taken a Sharpie to uh, alter the bill. I'm going to go ahead and put a picture of it up here on the screen. Kind of hard to to see, perhaps. But somebody took a Sharpie and crossed one word out of the bill. Normally the bill says, in God we trust. Somebody didn't really like that, perhaps some person with the ACLU or whatever the case may be. Took a Sharpie and we're going to just cross God out off the uh, the twenty dollar bill. I think that was a twenty. Um, by the way, they still accepted it at Chick Fil A. It still worked. Still bought lunch for me. The mac and cheese was just as good as it always is. Uh, but that phrase, "In God We Trust," it's emblazoned with all of our currency. Uh, any money you might happen to have on you, even coins, would would have that phrase on it. Um, I suppose the individual there with that sharpie was trying to cancel God or or, or some such thing uh, as, they, uh, as they did that. Uh, but that phrase, in God we trust, has served as our national motto since 1956. You might think, well, that's actually pretty recent. Uh, the, the unofficial motto was, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. 
Um, but in 1956, as the Cold War was really ramping up, the Eisenhower administration is like, okay, we're fighting godless communism. We need to draw the lines very clearly. So they added under God to the, uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance. And in God We Trust became the official motto of, of our nation. Um, now, that phrase first showed up in the, uh, during the Civil War when uh, Salmon P. Chase was Secretary of the, the Treasury under Lincoln. And during the Civil War, both sides wanted to sort of say God was on our side. Um, and Lincoln, of course, famously in his second inaugural is like, what if God's on neither of our sides? Anybody think about that? But Chase uh, got letters from various ministers who said, we need to make it just very clear that we are, you know, we are under God and we want to, reference, want to reverence God. And so in God is our trust is a phrase that comes from the, uh, one of the verses of the Star-Spangled Banner. But he tweaked it just a little bit in God we trust. And it was put on the money during the, the Civil War and there were various iterations from that point on. Uh, it's been challenged from time to time. Maybe the, the, the Sharpie wielder in the picture earlier and others like him have gone to the courts and be like, that's an you know, inappropriate establishment of religion. But the courts have upheld it. In fact, uh, 1983, uh, Justice Brennan, who was a liberal justice, he said the slogan was fine because, quote, it has lost any true religious significance. And i got to agree with Justice Brennan on that. In God we trust, we can have it on our money, God bless America, all of these things, one nation under God. But you have to ask the question, what does it mean to trust? And who is the God that we are purporting to trust? Is he just the God of our own making? Uh, people joked various times, it's really in gold we trust, or in this God we trust, really trusting mammon, rather than God. But what are we trusting him for? What are we trusting him for? Now, according to historian Thomas Kidd, this phrase, in God we trust, originally, if you trace it sort of all the way back to where it first started coming up, comes from our text today. This was not just an excuse for me to sort of nerd out on history for five minutes. Psalm 56, verse 11 has this phrase, in God have I put my trust. Uh, or it could be rendered as it was in the metrical Psalter, in God I trust, and then you make it national in God, we trust, is where this phrase originally comes from. And Psalm 56 is a wonderful psalm about fear and faith. A psalm that sort of shows how these two play tug of war with each other in the heart of someone who is a follower of God. Now, for us to get a sense of what this psalm is all about and what it really means to trust God. By the way, I've got no problem with the slogan, In God We Trust. That's really the, the title today, where we want to go to say, we as believers need to trust God, but let's fill that out so it's not just a, an empty slogan that has no religious significance, but something that has real meaning in our lives. What it really means to trust God when everything is screaming at you to fear and to run away. To trust in a God who has very faithful promises. But the setting here, if you noticed in the title... Verse 1 in the Hebrew text, it says that it was written when the Philistines took David in Gath. Like, what, what, what is that referencing to? That is referencing an event back in 1 Samuel. So pop back over to 1 Samuel 21 with me. This is really important for us to understand. What is, what is David kind of getting at when he's talking about, at what time I'm afraid, I'll trust in you? That's a verse you kind of teach kids to be like, hey, when you're scared in the middle of the night, trust Jesus. Good thing to teach our kids. But does this work when you're facing real, like, very, very dangerous situations? Does God's, you know, faith in God just kind of go so far, but when things get tough, then it's okay to panic? 1 Samuel 21 sort of shows David in a, in a low point in his life. Here's the setting. He's been anointed king. And Saul, who is the current king, is incredibly threatened by that, and so he's trying to kill David. Um, I've never had somebody 
tried to kill me with this, just this rage that, that Saul has for David. So let's just read this passage, really important backdrop here. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. So this village where the priests are, where the tabernacle is sort of set up at that time. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, said to him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? Normally David would be one of Saul's lieutenants and have some soldiers with him as he goes off to fight the king's battles. And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me a business and has said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereunto I send thee. Not true. And what I have commanded thee and appointed my servant such and such a place. So here's David already. He's on the run. Fear is beginning to sort of take hold of his heart. And because of his fear... He does not tell Ahimelech the truth. He lies to him. He says, I'm on a mission for Saul. Everything's great. Gets Saul to, to sort of help him out and give him and a few of the guys with him some, some of the showbread um, out of fear. So the priest gives him the bread. Now, verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. So the king has his, you know, all his flocks and herds. This is the guy who sort of oversees those, makes sure they're managed well. And David said to Ahimelech, is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? So David is on such a running, like with such haste, he didn't even get his sword with him. Cut the long story short, the priest is like, hey, here's the sword of Goliath. Okay, David killed Goliath back, you know, a few chapters before. The sword's been stashed in the tabernacle. He gives him Goliath's sword. David's like, that's great. So now notice verse 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. So notice how fear is coming up a couple of times in this text. David's afraid of Saul, runs to Nob, gets helped by the priest. Because he's afraid, he lies to them about what's really going on. Because he has feared, he flees even further to say, man, if Saul is, you know, he's kind of got control over the region of Israel, let me leave Israel. And notice where he goes. He goes to Achish, king of Gath. Guess who was also from Gath? Goliath. So here he's showing up with Goliath's sword into Goliath's hometown where the enemies of the people of God reside. Um, like, man, that's not a smart move, right? It'd be like, man, I'm afraid of enemies here, so let me go to a place where they really won't like me. Uh, fear sometimes makes you dumb, right? It makes you do things that you normally wouldn't do. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? So they, they have no uh, They understand David's actually the king, even though Saul rejects that. Do they not sing one to another of him in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Like, this guy here is the, the, peop, the guy who kills Philistines. He's the guy who is like, takes our people out. Remember Goliath? Like, are we sure we want to harbor him? And David laid, laid these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So we've gone to fear to being sore afraid, very afraid. So fear is just coming, sort of overcoming David at the situation. Notice this is really pathetic. Verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their, in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. So he acts insane because they're like, this guy sure looks like David and everything we know about David, but now he's acting insane, so they're not so sure. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, see, the, the man is mad. He's insane. Where unto have... Uh, then have ye brought him to me? So David's been taken captive, brought before the king. He's acting crazy. Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play, mad, play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So that's the backdrop. So back over to Psalm 56. David's on the run. He is absolutely terrified of Saul. He's absolutely terrified of Doeg. Fear has led him 
to lie to the priest. Fear has led him to sort of totally degrade himself in the presence of the, the enemies of the people of God. Fear has led him to flee from the land into the place of his enemies. Not going super well for David. He's not trusting, relying upon God. He's not trusting God's promise. He's not fearing God as greater than his enemies. But in his eyes, man, Saul could kill me. Doeg could kill me. Achish could kill me. And he is just going crazy with fear. That is the situation here. This situation with David is a classic example of fear's poisonous power. It's fear that led David to lie. It's fear that led David to run. It's fear that led David to compromise and try to seek safety among the enemies of the people of God. It's fear that led him to embarrass and shame himself in the end. You know what comes to my mind is something that David's son wrote. Solomon. Psalm, or Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare. Now, when we, when we start making decisions because we're afraid of other people, when other people are, are, are big in our mind, like, well, what does that person think? And let me try to do what I think they want me to do, or I better not say anything over here, because it, it leads us to be, be frauds, right? It brings a snare into our lives. It makes us no longer obey God. But the contrast, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. So notice the contrast between fear is trusting in God. You either will fear man, when you see man as great and powerful and mighty and terrifying, or you will fear and trust God. Those are the options. So that brings us back to Psalm 56. That is set the table for us. Verses 3 and 4. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So notice the tension here. This fits perfectly with the setting back in 1 Samuel 21. Am I going to fear man or am I going to fear God? Am I going to put all my hopes in what people can do or am I going to put my hopes in what God can do? We get that refrain repeated again in verse 10. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. So this psalm is telling us what do we do when we fear? I'm talking about fear of man. What do we do when, there, when, there's, when there's a person that sort of has control over us where you're giving in, you find yourself giving in to peer pressure all the time? When you find yourself doing things that you don't really believe in because you think other people want you to do them, anybody sort of tracking with me there? Where you say yes to a bunch of stuff that you really can't do and don't want to do, but you're, do, you're saying yes because you think it'll make other people happy? What's going on there is varying levels of fear of man. We're fearing people rather than God. We're, we're looking to people rather than God. So what do you do in those times of fear of man? Whether it's as extreme as David's situation, somebody is going to try to kill me. Or as low-grade as, man, I wonder what my friends at work will think of me when they find out that I'm a Christian. What do we do? In times of fear, God calls us to trust him. That's very simple, what the, simply what the psalm is saying. So let's just break it down this way. We'll talk about what we fear uh, as the psalm sort of breaks it down for us, why it is that we fear, and then what do we do when we fear? What is sort of the antidote to fear? There's a number of different things that we could point to that David could sort of look at and be like legitimately afraid of. Look in verses 1 and 2. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. That Hebrew word could be the idea of trample or the idea of pant after. So you can almost picture David's on the run and Saul is chasing right after him in, in, in hot pursuit. Mine enemies would daily swallow or trample or pant after me, uh, for they be many that fight against me. So he's not just got Saul, but he's got Saul's armies. He's also got Achish and the Philistines. He's got all kinds of people who have it out for him. O thou most high 
later on in the psalm, I will not fear what flesh can do unto me, um, is actually a rhetorical question in the Hebrew. What can flesh do to me? Well, it turns out that people can actually do quite a lot to us. What can man do to me? Well, they can chase you down. They can kill you. They can make your life miserable. Paul, saw, I'm sorry, David is being hounded. He's been hounded out of his home and his homeland. He's been attacked. He's been threatened. And David's afraid. Now, let me just say something here. Um, all fear is not sinful. Right? There's a natural response that we have that, that, that fear can be a really good, life-preserving kind of thing. Uh, so for David to just sort of stand and be like, I'm going to be really courageous, and Saul's going to throw a spear at me, and I'm just going to take it, like, that's, that's foolhardy. That's not, that's not a, a, an appropriate response to danger. So there is a right kind of fear that, that, that can preserve our lives. But fear becomes problematic when we forget God. Fear becomes a problem when we begin to fear people more than we fear or reverence or respect God. And that is where David is in this instance. When our opinion and our attitude towards other people leads us to make decisions we should not make, we are now fearing God, fearing men rather than God. Think of Peter. For fear of man, he denied Christ. He's just afraid of man. Think of, think of Abraham. Goes down to Egypt and oh man, you know, Pharaoh's going to see my wife. She's going to be, thinks she's pretty. He's going to want to, he's going to kill me to take her. So he lies about his relationship to his wife, and she almost, almost ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Fear of man brings a snare. And maybe there's a sense here that, yes, David is fearing physically for his life, but there's also the fear of just being rejected by Saul, a man who he loved, a nation that he served, the people of Israel. I think a lot of us, the fear of man takes on the guise of fearing people's rejection. And what if people don't like me? What if people don't want me around? On the other side, where you're, where you're constantly thinking about, what do people think? I wonder how this is going to come across. I wonder if people will like the way that I said that. I wonder if the way I dress will sort of impress other people. And what happens? Fear of man turns us into people pleasers rather than God pleasers. Understand this, that whoever or whatever you fear the most has control over your life. Whoever or whatever you fear the most has control over your life. It functionally becomes your God. It's what I fear. Maybe it's fear of losing something that I have, and so I'll do anything to keep that, even compromise to keep that thing or that status or that relationship. Whatever we fear the most has control over our lives, functionally becomes our God. So David here, there's this, man, real fear. He's being attacked. He's being hounded. Real physical danger, but it is spilled over into this unhealthy fear of man. There's some other things he mentions here he could, he, he could be afraid of. So verse 3, what time I am afraid, I'll trust in thee. We'll come back to that. Look down in verse 5. He comes back to talk about his enemies. Every day they rest my words. Okay, the idea there is they twist my words. They misrepresent me. All their thoughts against me are for evil. Being misrepresented is no fun. Ever been misrepresented before where someone takes something you said or did and they, 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 they portray it or take it out of context and what you said was this when you didn't really say or mean that? And why does that hurt? I mean, that could get people to really dislike you and hate you, but, man, there's a, there's a sense of, of shame, like my reputation being hurt here. Um, in the ancient world, it's very much a shame-honored culture here in, in Israel and the ancient Near East. To have someone sort of destroy your reputation is almost like them taking your life. People are fearsome because they can attack our reputation. 
right? You can, you can fear people because they could reject you. But you can fear people because they could bring shame upon you. Something you say can, be, can go viral before the truth could ever come out. Shame can come as a result of other people's attacks, as it was for David. He's, he, he's not actually betrayed Saul, but Saul is, believe, Saul is full of suspicion. It's like, oh, David's out to get me. He's got Doeg whispering in his ear. But sometimes shame comes as a result, let's be honest, of our own sin being exposed. And we like to hide. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam, where art thou? We, we, we want to hide. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be known. And ultimately what lies behind that is an attempt to sort of cover our sin, make ourselves look better than we really are. See, here's one of the things the fear of man will do. This is sort of stepping aside a little bit from David's example. But are there things in your life that you're like, man, I really hope nobody ever knows this about me. And I really, really hope that I can sort of keep this, you know, this, this flaw, this weakness, or even go to the point where I will lie or misrepresent myself to make myself look better in people's eyes. Fear of man can, can lead us to do that. But praise God, he knows us inside and out, and he still loves us in spite of that. So David's got, you know, real fears. Enemies are, are sort of chasing after him. He's sort of been rejected. There's this... this People are wrestling, or resting my words, twisting my words, misrepresenting, harming my reputation. But of course, the biggest fear that David has is literally people are trying to kill him. Right? You're like, well, that's a pretty legitimate thing to be afraid of. But even there, the fear of man has spilled over and become a sort of a, a driving factor in his decision making. Verse 6, he really spells this out. Okay, end of verse 5 says, All their thoughts are against me for evil. Maybe a, a better idea here is more specific. All of their plans, their plots, are against me for evil. They're trying to do me harm. They're plotting. Verse 6, they gather themselves together. So all of his enemies are getting into a huddle being like, how can we take David down? They hide themselves. So now they're sort of looking for ways to ambush and bring him down. They mark out my steps. The idea here is they're nipping at my heels. They're, they're right on my heels all the time. And then the end of verse 6, and they wait for my soul. That idea of waiting for my soul, waiting for my life. They are trying to take David's life. Saul had literally thrown spears at David. By the way, when Saul finds out that the priests in Nob had helped David, given him bread, given him the sword, he has them all killed. And the priests are like, we didn't know anything about what David was doing because he lied to them. An entire village of priests, dozens of people killed as a result of, of the situation. There's plenty of evidence to show that, that Saul's intentions towards David were murderous, were homicidal. So these are not made-up dangers in his mind. This is not, David, you're being a little paranoid here, like it's all in your head. Um, when a spear comes whizzing at you through the, ear, it's not all, through the air, it's not all in your head. These are real physical dangers. He's facing a real threat of physical harm, pain, death. So while there's good reason to say, you know, if someone's throwing spears at you, duck, and maybe get out of town... There is a danger of legitimate fear becoming sinful fear. That's where David finds himself as he's sitting in Achish's palace in the city of Gath, in the midst of, his, of the enemies of the people of God, pretending to be insane. So we can fear these same things that David feared, this fear of rejection. People might not like me or... May not want me around. This fear of, of, of exposure, of shame, of like, man, stand up in front of the audience and people will look at me and I, I'll look foolish up there. This fear of threat or harm that comes upon us. 
what can man do unto me? Apparently man can do quite a bit. The real question is, though, who's going to be bigger, God or Saul? Who am I going to fear and reverence more, God or my enemies? That's the question that this psalm is wrestling with. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a healthy fear of Saul or of Pharaoh or of Israel going into the Canaanite armies. But it'll be foolhardy. But it is wrong to fear them more, more than God. It is wrong to fear them in a way that that becomes the driving force motivation in our lives. Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can kill body and soul in hell. Fear God more than you fear man. So what are ways that the fear of man is coming up in your life? You're like, man, I made a lousy decision yesterday, and it was because I was concerned about what everyone else was thinking. Fear of man brings a snare, and we need to go to war against it. But as we go to war against it, I want to ask a second question. Why do we fear people? Right? What is sort of underlying this? And we've kind of touched on this already, but I want to spell this out more simply. So what do we fear? Rejection and exposure and, and threats and harms that come our way. But why is it that we fear? Well, we get a little bit of some of the clues here. Here, David is writing after the fact as he is sort of through the fear of man and come out on the other side to reaffirm his faith and his confidence in God. He asks some questions along the way, and he makes some statements along the way that show that the way he resolved this was getting a right perspective of God and of people. So verse 1, he, asks, he says this, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Okay, there's a few different Hebrew words for man. This is the word enosh, uh, which has this nuance, this emphasis of man as sort of just a mortal, frail being. David gets to a realization on the other side of, of getting out of Gath, of realizing, man, all those people that I was so afraid of are mere mortals. They put their robes on one sleeve at a time, just like I do. He came to that realization. Now, in the moment, they, 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 they loomed large, but as he reoriented his relationship and his heart on God, he realized, just man. Okay, we get the same idea down in, in verse 4. He asks the rhetorical question, uh, what can flesh do unto me? That word flesh, again, emphasizing the fact that, that mankind, these people that he's so afraid of, again, mortal, weak, limited. They're not God. Down in verse 12, he uses a different Hebrew uh, or maybe verse 11, I'm sorry. Um, I put my trust in God. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. The more generic word, Adam. But all three of these words emphasize the fact that the people that he's afraid of are just people. So why am I so concerned about their opinion if they're just people? So why is it that we fear? It's when this gets sort of flipped over the wrong way, when we fear and we reverence and we esteem people far greater than they really are, and then we see God as... Small. So I look them through a telescope the wrong way, or through the binoculars the wrong way, where it's like, wow, that thing that looks really small. Turn the binoculars around, right? See God as he really is, and man as he really is, really is. So why do we fear? We fear because we overestimate man. We put too much in stock in who people are. We give Saul and Doeg and Achish godlike power in our lives. So there are people whose opinions drive your decisions. Instead of asking, is this right or wrong, you're in the back of your mind going, oh, what would so-and-so think of this? Are there people whose disapproval would crush your soul? Man, if so-and-so thought ill of me, that would just devastate me. Are there people whose sort of approval and affection you have to have, or life is meaningless? Fear of man, you've overestimated man. 
Now, the other side of the coin is we fear not only because we overestimate man, but because we underestimate God. So notice what David emphasizes as he corrects this, as there's this course correction in his, in his life. He emphasizes the greatness of God. I, I love verse 4. In God I will praise his word. Now, the idea of word is promise. He's God as trustworthy, God as faithful. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. In Elohim, the one who is mighty, the one who is the creator, God. You see, when we overestimate man, we underestimate God. Fear of man forgets what God is like. Fear of man forgets that God is eternal, but man is mortal. It forgets that God is sovereign and man is not. That's what fear of man does. So David learned to combat fear of man with the reminder of God's power and God's might. You see, we can either worship and fear God, or we can worship and fear man. Whatever it is that you fear the most, whatever it is you trust the most to give your life meaning, that is your God. Very simply, why is it that we fear? We fear because of idolatry. That's it. This person that I'm afraid of, I put them up on a pedestal. They have control over my life. I sort of look to them to give my life meaning one way or another. They've become a little G-God in our lives. So what do we do when we fear? This last point sort of makes total sense after these first two points where all these things that we do fear, what can man do to me? Why do we fear? Because we, we see God as small and man as, 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 as infinitely big. So when we fear, what do we need to do? We need to reorient our hearts. We need to trust. So verse 3 gives it to us very, very simply. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Now that phrase, what time, is the, the, the word the day. On the day that I'm afraid. Now notice how that word day had come up over and over again. Verse 1, he fighting daily oppresses me. Verse 2, my enemies would daily swallow me up. Verse 3, on the day that I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. Now, that's an important point because this is not just a one-time, remember that one time I feared and I trusted God? The, the idea here is every day there's a new fear that's coming at David, and every day he's saying, and every day I'm going to reorient my heart to trusting God again. Every day I've got to pull my eyes off my problems and put them back on God. Every day I've got to choose to trust in spite of the dangers that are around me. So what is it about God that we must trust? I started the message talking about in God we trust can be a really hollow, empty statement. If that little three-letter word God is not really filled out and defined with biblical revelation, let's fill it out a little bit to where in God we trust can really mean something when we understand God to be the God of the Bible, when trust is biblical trust and not just a vague sentiment. On the day I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Um, I, I love how this is rendered in verse 11. In God have I put my trust. Which tells us my trust is going to be put somewhere. I could put my trust on some objects and, and other ones. I could put the trust on myself. I'm going to trust someone or something. David says, I'm going to put my trust and my confidence on God. He's going to be the object of my trust. I'm going to make this decision. So I'm going to trust the God who is bigger than man. What do you do when you fear? You trust the God who is bigger than man, the God who is bigger than your enemies, the God who is more powerful than your foes. Sort of the reverse of what we said a minute ago, these terms for man and flesh and Adam. Like, that's what man is like. I'm going to trust the God who is bigger, the God who is stronger. That, 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 even that word God, the one who created everything. 
Perhaps the greatest antidote to fear is theology. That, that, that surprises me. I thought it would be sort of some kind of therapy or steps that I need to take. But here's what I mean by theology, a right view of God, a biblical view of God, a grander vision of who God is. Not just this God who's vague and out there, but fill this out. A God who is bigger than man because he's the creator God who spoke the cosmos into existence with just his word. The men you fear, the, the people you fear, the people whose opinions you look to, are his creatures that are made of the dust of the ground. He's the one who gave them life, sustains it, and he'll take it from them. All of creation is under God. If you want to be or have a reminder of this, spend some time outside looking at the creation around you to see the grandeur and the power and the majesty of God. The beauty of a sunset, the glories of the season we're in, the, the awesome expanse of space on a dark night, the diversity that you see in the bayou or the, the, the power of the oceans, all of these speak to the fact that we've got an awesome and a powerful God. Why would I fear man when the God who holds the whole universe in the palm of his hands is for me, is on my side? But not only that, not only trust the God who is bigger than man, trust the God who listens. State the obvious Who's David speaking to? Be merciful to me, O God. And then he lays out, man would daily swallow me up. My enemies every day are coming after me. Every day they rest my words. The very fact that David speaks says that he is putting his trust in a God who listens. God who listens. You know, nothing could be more frightening than facing danger and feeling absolutely and totally alone. Right? You're like, you're walking through the house by yourself and then you hear something. Do, do, do. way scarier than if you're walking through the house with you know, your spouse or with someone else who's there and you hear something, you'll be like, oh, let's go look at it together. Though David may have felt completely alone in Gath, there's no indication he's got any help with him, humanly speaking. It's just him by himself fleeing into Gath, into the court of Achish. The psalm tells us that he had God. Um, it'll be the next chapter in 1 Samuel where he gets those 400 guys who come and hang out with him in his little army that surrounds him. He doesn't have that yet. He's by himself, yet he has a God he can speak to. He lays out all of his problems, all of his fears, all of his adversities before God. I think we've seen that over and over and over again in this series through Psalms. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Prayer's not just like a little band-aid you stick on there to be like, oh, hope and prayers and thoughts and prayers, this will make it better. Prayer is powerful. It brings our problems into the context of our relationship with God, and it reminds us that he is there for us. The very act of speaking our fears to God is a vital step in subduing them. It's like, this is what it is, and I'm taking it to God, and well, God's bigger than this. The fact I'm talking to God, he can do something about it. So trust the God who is bigger than man. Trust the God who listens. Trust the God who judges. So he describes the, the things they're doing in verses 5 and 6, the attacks and the conspiracies. Verse 7, shall they escape by iniquity? Are they going to get away with it? Are they going to do all these horrible things, all of this injustice? Will they get away with it? The implied answer is, no, they will not. In thine anger, cast down the peoples. That's a plural in the Hebrew. The Philistines, the nations. Verse 7 is simply affirming the point that the God we're speaking to is a God who judges, who will intervene on behalf of his people. There's just a few requests in the psalm, depending on how you translate a few things. Verse 1 has, be gracious, be merciful to me. 
And that carries all the way to verse 7 where we get this other command, that's, uh, this other request. Cast down the people, like bring judgment upon them. Two sides of one coin. Show mercy and grace to me, but bring justice on those who hate me. Now, God's anger is not an out-of-control emotion, but his righteous response to all evil. And let me just pause here to say this. Not just against really bad evil. Like, oh yeah, God will judge the Hamas and the terrorists over in Israel. God will also judge your sin and my sin. Which is why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. He's saying, in anger, anger cast down the peoples, O God. He's God the judge. You see, it's sometimes easy to say for for us when we're well-meaning, someone is suffering, they're going through a hard time, to say, you need to trust God. You ever say that to someone, yeah, you really need to trust God right now. That is true, but that can feel like just sort of an empty cliche to someone who is hurting. Just feel, well, you need to trust God. Just trust God more. And there it is. Here's a Hallmark card. Send it in the mail. Trust God. Everything will be fine. You know, don't worry. Be happy. And let's move on with life. You need to trust God is a wonderful truth, however, if we fill this out with biblical revelation. Why should I trust God? And how is it that trusting God will actually change things? So much more helpful to point some specific attributes of God. Trust the God who is gracious, verse 1, right? This God who is, be merciful to me, O God. This God who is just, who will judge evil. This God who listens. We come along to verse 8. We get another aspect of God, a God who sees. I love this. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Now, the word tell... The way we use it, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, but the way the word is, what the word meant in 1611 when the King was translated is the idea of counting. We use it to mean recount. I'm going to go recount something. But it means the idea of counting. So just replacing your mind with the, that word there, the word count. You count my wanderings. Here's David. He's wandered through the land, and now he is over in Gath in the land of the Philistines, saying, God, you count every step I'm taking and wandering and running and fleeing. You know. You know. There's a really awesome wordplay in verse 8. The word translated telest and the word translated book both sound the same. They're built on the sort of the same Hebrew word. And then in the middle, the word translated wanderings and the word translated bottle sound the same. So it's a really cool wordplay if you were to read this in Hebrew. But the point here is... My wanderings, the, the places I go, the places I have to flee to, the tears that, I, that I'm weeping as I suffer. Like, David's a tough, manly man, but, man, he's got emotions and heart, and this is painful and difficult for him. He says, God, you know all of the suffering. There's no sleepless night that God doesn't notice. There's no heartache that he doesn't, doesn't sense and understand. He remembers all of our suffering, all of our hardship, all of our tears. That doesn't mean there's like a literal bottle that you know, David's putting his tears into. There's, there's imagery going on here to say, God, what the tears represent, the hardship, the pain, the suffering that I'm going through, you know all about it. Some of you have gone through really, really hard times. There have been tears that you have shed that nobody has seen, nobody has heard about. But God does. There's someone who knows, and you don't have to go into Facebook and share about it for someone to know about it. He knows and he cares, and the care is deep and profound. You see, the God we trust, in God we trust. You need to trust God. 
The God we trust is a God who sees, a God who knows, a God who understands. No hardship is unseen. No pain is unheeded. No agony is unnoticed. And all of this gets amplified a thousand times more when we get to the New Testament. Because something happens dramatically in the beginning of the New Testament. So how can God understand? He's never walked where I've walked. Unless the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came and lived in this world. Truly man, a true full human nature. Necessary for him to be man, to represent man at the cross. But something else that comes along with that is he he knows what it is to suffer. We read in the scriptures, Jesus wept. He knows what it is to weep and feel the hurts and pains of a fallen world where there is death and suffering. We know that Jesus was tempted. Not in the way you and I are because we've got a sin nature, but he faced this external testing out of the wilderness. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what I will, but what thou will. We witness as he walks the Via Dolorosa suffering in agony to the cross. As he's nailed to a cross with spikes through his wrist and his hand. He knows physical suffering on a scale that neither you nor I will ever experience. And he goes to the cross for our sin. He dies in our place as our substitute. That's the main point of the cross is him being the remedy for our sins. And he rises again from the dead. And that same Jesus in that same body is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to intercede and to plead for us as his children, as his people. The God in heaven through whom we, we have access, Jesus, is one who understands One who says, come boldly to the throne of grace. There's the the ads that are running on TV. He gets us. They're kind of shallow to be like, oh, look, Jesus went through hard times. He gets us. The truth is beautiful and wonderful. Jesus does get us on a level that goes far beyond just sort of like the the shallowness of, oh, he kind of understands. He's gone through the experiences we have gone through, yet without sin, and he is for us. So the next truth in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, we get this phrase, I cry unto you, my enemies will turn back. This I know God is for me. That God, the one who lived on this earth, who rose again, he's for me. He's on my side. He has covenanted himself to me, and nothing will separate me from his love. No suffering, no hardship, no pain will separate me from his love or will, will contradict the fact that God loves me. This is why the prosperity gospel is such a disaster, such a load of garbage, because it says if God loves you, he'll give you good things in your life. Where Romans 8 says God loves you, and there's going to be suffering, and there's going to be hardship. And that doesn't mean that God loves you any less, but he's preparing for you something far better in glory. Trust the God who is for you. The one who died for you in your place. The one who lives for you, the one who pleads for you. He is for you. He's on your side, not just in a vague sort of sense, oh yeah, God's with me because I'm a great guy. He's for me because of the cross. He's for me because of the empty tomb. If you ever question, is God really for me because life is really hard right now, go to Golgotha, go to Calvary, go to the cross. That is the, 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 the never-ending monument to the fact that God is for his people. Trust the God who sees, the God who is for you. Finally, the God who delivers. Just highlight this again, verse 4. 
In God, I will praise his word. We have it again in verse 10. In God, I will praise his word. What does this mean to praise his word? This idea that I'm going to trust his promise. Here's David in the middle of Gath, and he's saying, you know what? I need to trust the promise of God. Now, he had a specific promise from God that he would be king. He can't die in Gath. He's got this promise that he lays hold of. I'm going to praise your promise as an act of defiant faith against fear. You know, one of the weapons we have against fear of man is worship. Here's what worship does. Worship takes my eyes off of all the things that are on my mind, on my heart, going on in my life, and it puts my eyes onto God, a God who is bigger. It says, as we sang today, behold our God. That's what worship does. Puritans used to say, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. It's a good, a good rule of thumb. For every look at your problems, take ten looks to the God who is bigger than your problems. So this refrain, David repeats again and again his praise of God's promise. Now the psalm ends, verses 12 and 13. We wanted to structure the psalm. We have those refrains that kind of give us the, these different realms where we've got verse, kind of verses 1 to, 1 to 4, refrain, and then verses 5 to 11 with this refrain at the end of it. Now verses 12 and 13 give us kind of an epilogue to it. David's writing this after the fact. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. David comes out on the other side being like, God's the one who did that. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the, in the, in the light of the living? Indeed he shall. So what's this deal with, with vows and render praises? What's implied here is David, when he was in this hardship, saying, God, I believe you're going to deliver me. I'm praying that you will deliver me, and when you do... I am making a vow before you that I will bring a thanks offering to the tabernacle to sacrifice. The term translated um, render praises in verse 12, render thanks, used throughout the Old Testament law to talk about the thanks offerings. God does something for you. I'm going to bring an offering not to atone for sin, not because I have to, but just as a, God, thank you so much for what you have done. So I, I made a vow, and those vows are upon me. They're binding, and I'm writing it down, and I'm stating it publicly. I'm going to, to do that. I'm going to give God the praise and the glory and the worship for his deliverance. David's not delivered from Gath because he came up with a clever scheme to pretend to be crazy. He's delivered from Gath because God was merciful to him. David is not delivered from Saul because he came up with a clever lie. He's delivered because God graciously delivered him. And that's what he's saying at the end is, my fear was foolish, yet God delivered me anyway. David going to the tabernacle, it might have been months, years later when he finally could go there in safety, but when he goes to offer this thanksgiving and thank offering in fulfillment of his vow to God, he's giving testimony to everyone else to say, look at what God did for me. Look at it. In fact, that word uh, in the title, miktam, um, a lot of debate about what it means, but the idea there is something that is inscribed. It's like, I'm chiseling this into the rock. God delivered me and I want everyone to know, and here we are reading his inscription that he wrote down. An inscription, a written testimony for future generations of the God who is trustworthy, the God who delivers. Now, the deliverance we ultimately need is deliverance from our sin, deliverance from death, deliverance from hell. And, beloved, that deliverance is ours through the one who died on the cross, through Jesus of Nazareth, who died to bear the wrath of God on the cross and rose again from the dead. And that deliverance is received not by works, not by effort, but by trust. Simply trusting 
Now, faith in Jesus is not just like a, I agree with the facts of the gospel. Some of, some of you here have heard me give the gospel week after week, or you've sat in Sunday school classes hearing the gospel. You know the facts that who Jesus was, and he died on the cross, and he rose again, and you agree with it intellectually. But are you actively trusting? Have you said, I'm going to stop hoping for the fact that God will just kind of let me off the hook when I get to heaven one day out of because I'm a good person? Say, I'm going to trust in Jesus and him alone for my salvation. To sort of get off the fence and say, I'm with him. To say, I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm, I'm turning away. Saving faith is a repentant faith. I'm going to turn my back on my sin. I'm going to turn my back on running my own life. And I'm going to take hold of Jesus and trust him and him only. Put your trust in Christ today. Now, believer, the life of faith doesn't end the moment that you put your trust in Jesus for salvation. The entire Christian life is a walk of faith. This Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham leaves, and every step of the way is faith, it's faith, it's faith, it's trusting the promises of God. Here's a question for you. Where does fear of man show up in your life? Because where fear of man shows up in your life is a place where faith is deficient, where you're, where you're trusting man, trusting yourself rather than God. Where does fear of man show up in your life? And what truths about God, things that are absolutely true about who he is, do you need to take hold of to counter that? What do you need to latch onto in that, that fight against the fear of man? In what ways do you need to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and stick it into the fear of man? Say, in God we trust. So much more than just a, a national motto. This is a way of life for the Christian to say, in spite of everything going on around me, in spite of all of the dangers, the, the fear that I might, might have of what people could do to me, in what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Are you actively trusting in him?